Thank you, Sean and Paul, for blessing us this morning. And kids, have a wonderful time together learning about Jesus. Well, good morning. So I'm a basketball fan, and just recently I watched the NBA Finals for this season, the final series that determines who the champion of professional basketball will be for this year. And the Denver Nuggets won it this year. It was their first ever championship, so exciting for the city of Denver, or if you happen to be a Denver Nuggets fan. And even if you don't like basketball or even sports in general, there's something that you have to admire about sports, about what it takes for a team in sports to win a championship. It's not, or it's often not easy to do it. Usually the path towards it is marked by difficulty, by obstacles of some sort that make winning that much sweeter. So after the Nuggets had won that decisive game and, and won it all, um, I was watching afterwards as uh, all the players gather on the podium and, and they interview some of the players and uh, they interviewed some of the stars on the team, uh, one of which uh, is named Michael Porter Jr., who's had not one but four back surgeries in the last several years and came back to be a great player and contributor to the team. Another one of the, the great players on the team, Jamal Murray, tore his ACL a few years ago, which is just a devastating injury when you're an athlete or if you're not an athlete. Um, and both of these players talked about those dark days, you know, battling through this injury and, and the doubts they had and the despair they felt and the fear that they had that they might not come back and, and be the great players that they were. Uh, Jamal Murray was fighting back tears just thinking about those dark days and what it took to get to this point to win that championship. And then there was Nikola Jokic, really the, the star of, of stars on that team, the Serbian player who, once he got into his teenage years, uh, NBA scouts went over to Europe and they said, yeah, he has some skills, but he's a little chubby and we just don't think he's going to amount to anything really spectacular. Well, Nikola Jokic ended up winning two Most Valuable Player awards and hoisting the championship trophy with his team. So all this didn't happen overnight for the Denver Nuggets. They, they built their team and rebuilt their team, you could say, you know, fighting through injuries and other obstacles over a number of years to get to where they did. Well, last week we saw how after King Cyrus decreed that the exiled people of God return to Jerusalem and rebuild, God's people began by rebuilding the temple altar, that principal place where God dwelt with them. We were reminded of how important worship is, coming into God's presence, and how when we do it, God fills us and blesses us, overwhelming our fears and even our lack of desire to worship him. So today we will look at a turn in this unfolding drama from the book of Ezra as we continue our sermon series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the passage before us this morning will be from Ezra 4, reading the entirety of chapter 4, and then the first two verses of Ezra 5. This is God's word, living and active. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, 
and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, 
prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that uh, you would give us your Holy Spirit. Uh, May my words be your words, and may I be... Uh, simply a channel to us to you, that we um, are revealed and made known um, your truth and may the gospel of Christ uh, be made known to us in a deeper way. Amen. Well, two main things that we will reflect on this morning as we consider the passage before us. Uh, the first is opposition. In verse 1, we see these adversaries that are mentioned. Uh, So these so-called adversaries heard that God's people were rebuilding the temple. And so they went to Zerubbabel and the other leaders of the project and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God. So who were these adversaries exactly? Well, they were various people groups who had been transplanted into the region of Samaria after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, uh, almost 200 years before the point that we are now. They were instructed to worship Yahweh, but they also mixed in worship of other gods from other nations. And if we fast forward to New Testament times, the Jewish hostility toward the Samaritan people has the roots Uh, here with these Sumerian people. Now these adversaries seemingly made a a reasonable request uh, to the Israelites. They just wanted to collaborate and worship and and help with the construction. Uh, There doesn't seem to be too much wrong with that. Uh, But as the passage shows, their intentions were in the end shown to be insidious. So how did the Israelites respond Well, you can see in verse 3 that they flat out reject the proposal of these adversaries. You have nothing to do with us. Now, at first glance, this might seem unnecessarily harsh or uh, maybe uh, even a little bit racist on the part of the Israelites. Uh, But in fact, they were uh, staying true to the command that, that King Cyrus gave to them. They said, you know, King Cyrus directed us to rebuild the temple alone. But more than that, they were obeying God's command from years before that they were not to assimilate with the foreign peoples around them. They were not to mix their worship of the one true God with worship of other gods, otherwise known as religious syncretism. And the same holds true for us today. We are not to assimilate with the culture around us, Now, that does not mean that we're not to be involved with the world. It doesn't mean that we can't have friends who uh, don't worship God or or follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't seek to proclaim the name of Christ in all we do. But it does mean that we must worship God alone and not add to our worship of God worldly philosophies or different forms of spirituality that are opposed to God's word 
And that's really the, the moment in which we live. You know, we, we, we look all around our, our nation and world, and it, it is a kind of pan-spirituality that exists out there. You know, there's all kinds of spiritualities. You know, you might have heard more than once someone say, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. But God does not give us the option to explore different ways of spirituality. We must worship him alone. Well, how did the adversaries respond to the Israelites' response? And we see that they discouraged God's people. They made them afraid to build. They bribed counselors against them, all to frustrate their designs to rebuild the temple. These were calculated and menacing responses to the Israelites' rejection of them. One commentator writing that their actions reflected those of Satan, while another commentator says that these adversaries, they were really ultimately seeking influence and control. It was more of a a political aim. The implication is that they continued to be a thorn in their side during Cyrus's reign and even up until and during King Darius's reign, a period of roughly 16 years. More than that, the adversaries wrote a formal letter of accusation against the exiles. And so we see this this letter, a somewhat lengthy letter, in verses 6 through 23. Now, you may be looking at the text and seeing different guys mentioned and wondering, you know, what's, what's going on here? Well, verses 6 through 23 form a parenthesis in this passage, uh, jumps forward in time, if you will. The reigns of Persian kings, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, came after the reigns of Cyrus and Darius. So this is a literary device where the focus of the passage is not chronological, but rather thematic. As the author, who we think was Ezra, uh, meant to convey this theme of ongoing opposition over many years. So these adversaries wrote to King Artaxerxes, and they wrote in Aramaic, which was the official language of diplomacy at the time. And in this letter, they use words that, that paint what the Israelites are doing as, as evil, writing that they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. And we see an example of this jump forward in time when in the letter they say they're, they're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. So again, because this is flash-forwarded in time, this refers to the city, not the temple, which by the time of Artaxerxes, the temple had been rebuilt. They insist that if the rebuilding is completed, the Israelites won't pay tribute or custom or toll, and thus the Persian royal funds will take a hit. Further, they implore Artaxerxes to to search the records and and, and indeed find that these Israelites have always been a rebellious people, full of sedition and harmful to kings around them, which could be uh, alluding to a couple of Israelite kings along the way who who did rebel against uh, different empires that were in power at the time. So the king responds to this formal letter and writes back and says, I've searched the records and I agree with how you have painted the Israelite people and makes a decree that the rebuilding of the city 
cease until he should give another decree to reverse it. So these adversaries went quickly to the Israelites and by force made them stop rebuilding the city. So we sit back and and try to put ourselves in in the shoes of, of God's exiled people here and we see that it is a rather bleak turn of events, uh, both in the days of temple rebuilding and in the days of rebuilding the city, the continued opposition. We can try to imagine the discouragement felt at this time. Perhaps God's people were wondering if the rebuilding was ever going to be completed, even questioning God's power to overcome their enemies. Well, when we take a moment and survey our lives, in a way, life is just full of difficulty, isn't it? Certainly there are times when things are more easygoing and, and pleasant, and, and we can give thanks to God for those seasons, right? We're to give thanks to God for all things. But maybe more often than not, we are faced with opposition and obstacles that take various forms. Sometimes it's just the circumstances of, of life. We've all had those days or periods when we we throw our hands up and say nothing is going right. Other times we do face more direct opposition from people around us, whether it's co-workers, neighbors, or family members who might ridicule us because we are Christians or simply make life difficult for us in any way they can. Ultimately, we need to be reminded that this is spiritual warfare. Every day we live in this life is a day that we're engaged in this spiritual battle, ultimately against not flesh, but Satan and his evil forces. Well, in the midst of of these bleak events and this discouragement that the people were facing, and in the midst of discouragement that, that we face in our lives, how do we respond to that? Well, at the very beginning of Ezra 5, we see words of of hope. And that brings us to the second main thing this morning, and that is rebuilding. The prophet's words to the people are are seen in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Haggai and Zechariah, God's prophets, God's mouthpieces, bring a message from God to encourage the people amid the difficulty of opposition They were to continue to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem so that they could properly worship God and experience his presence and blessing. And so the people show courage to obey God's will despite this continuing opposition. Immediately after, we see the opposition continuing, so we just see that theme so present in these chapters of Ezra. But also we cannot miss a couple of, of key things in the opening of chapter 5. And the first is that these prophets spoke not from their own words or thoughts. Uh, They didn't, you know, come to the people and say, hey, you know, we were thinking it would be a great idea if we continued to rebuild. They came with God's very words, in the name of God, with God's authority. Matthew Henry writes, the temple of God among men is to be built not by secular force, but by the word of God. As the weapons of our warfare, so the instruments of our building are not carnal, but spiritual. 
we also see a second thing that's so key and, and, and something that weaves throughout the Bible story, and that is both human actions through faith and God's sovereignty or God's divine help, which mysteriously work together to accomplish God's purposes. Mark Futado says that the Bible never explains uh, how these two things work together, but they do work together, and it's a wonderful mystery to behold. Well, we see that playing out in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus' life was one where he faced opposition and obstacles. In fact, we recently went through a sermon series called The Jesus Opposition. He faced opposition from religious leaders and even his own family. He faced extreme hunger and temptation from Satan who sought to derail his true mission. He went through a courtroom trial enduring unfair accusations and assaults. And he ended up on the cross, dying the death that you and I deserve because of our sin. And though his followers in that moment watched in despair as their Lord and Master was being crucified, God was using Christ's death to secure redemption for us. Friends, if God used something as as terrible in the moment as his son's death to redeem us and bring himself glory, how much more will he use the circumstances of our lives in the same way? We can look through throughout history and see um, all kinds of uh, incredible lives lived and, you know, lives lived uh, for God. And one such life and example is that of William Wilberforce. Uh, If you love to read, I recommend a book that is all about Wilberforce and his life. It's called Amazing Grace by Eric Metaxas. Uh, If you don't like to read as much and prefer to spend about two hours of your time kind of getting the, the story, uh, there was also a movie that came out, I think around 2006, also called Amazing Grace, a very good movie. Uh, but Wilberforce was a British abolitionist and philanthropist. Uh, he was born in 1759 and came to faith at about age 12. And it was during this time, as a young lad, where he met George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, and John Newton, the slave trader who came to Christ and abandoned the slave trade, and then wrote arguably the most beloved hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. In 1779, Wilberforce moved to London, and he entered politics, being elected to Parliament at the age of only 21, which was the youngest ever. And I think back to when I was 21, I don't know what I was doing, but uh, it wasn't anything like that. Um, So it was a few years later that Wilberforce would become more serious about his Christian faith and actually contemplated uh, leaving politics for a life in ministry. But it was John Newton and Wilberforce's good friend, William Pitt, who urged him to remain in politics to better serve Christ there. He did just that and eventually was convicted that God called him to two pursuits, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. But the abolition of slavery was hardly popular during that time in Britain, where Beforce was the target of tirades and assassination threats. Uh, a furious ship captain at one point came up to him on the street and physically assaulted him. 
there was slander against him that he beat his wife, and he wasn't even married at the time. Plus, his friends were also accused of being spies. But he kept pushing forward, he kept being persistent, and put up a bill for the abolition of slavery in 1793. It failed, but he was persistent, and he kept introducing the bill. And years later, in 1807, it was again on the floor of Parliament, and this time, more and more began to give speeches in favor of abolition and in support of Wilberforce. Well, the vote came in, and by a count of 283 to 16, the slave trade was abolished in Britain. The prime minister called it a measure which will diffuse happiness among millions now in existence and for which the memory will be blessed by millions yet unborn. William Wilberforce endured opposition, even sickness for much of his life, to do something great for God and his kingdom. Opposition and obstacles, uh, we think about these things in our lives, and they aren't things that prevent God from accomplishing his work in our lives and the world, but he works through them to do it. So far, we've been emphasizing in our series in Ezra and Nehemiah how God was restoring the people physically as they rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the city, and in the process was restoring them spiritually. God builds and rebuilds. The initial building is amazing when God does this, but maybe what is more amazing is the rebuilding God takes what is broken down and in despair and weak and helpless and transforms it into something beautiful. God did this in the lives of his exiled people then, and he does that for us today. And we can really trace a line from this time when the temple was being rebuilt and go into the new age when Christ came to be the true, the true temple, the true dwelling place of God in our hearts. The Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Friends, God is building and rebuilding us to be a holy people who can serve him with gladness. Praise be to God. Let's pray.